Hello, everybody. Welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. This is our Friday episode, a little bit more ad hoc this series for good reason. This season, there's lots going on and giving enough time to everything is proving a challenge. We want to make sure above all things that we have time for extended abiding and prayer and so on. And, and this kind of thing should never take priority over that. But just to give you a couple of housekeeping things really just a couple of notices before I let you hear the audio from a vlog a video over on YouTube that went up last night entitled leave church what then as a kind of third part of a mini video series about leaving unfaithful quote-unquote Christian contexts unfaithful churches which really aren't churches at all and that put at least a question mark over whether genuine Christian discipleship is actually happening. I'll let you hear that audio just shortly. And to also update you, just with regards to a couple of forthcoming episodes, uh, for those of you who track with us might be, might be wondering where they are, I want us to just say that next Friday, so a week today, Mary and I will be doing the next episode in our Eschatology Explained series, which is trying not, not trying to be a kind of comprehensive study um, particularly, but it is wanting to draw attention to to the main kind of eschatological positions. And our next episode, we'll be looking at making a case for historical premillennialism as opposed to the dispensationalism that we drew attention to last time. And so premill historical pre-mill is what we're talking about next time. Then Mary and I will be doing an episode, as mentioned recently, about Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla, um, and looking at the references in the New Testament from Paul to this wonderful couple, wonderful ministry-focused couple, and what that means for gender roles within the church. Does that mean that egalitarianism is right? Well, obviously not, and uh, well, it's not obvious, is it? We're going to be dealing with that for for that reason as a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And then finally, just to flag that we will be finishing City of Temples, our long study through the book of 1 Corinthians. That will be finishing in the next couple of weeks, literally the next one or two Sundays. And then we'll be looking at the Gospel of John in a new series entitled Look at the Lamb. So if you'd like to track with that, please do. We'll be doing our Bible readings throughout and we're doing that tonight um, of the Gospel of John so if you want to track with us live on YouTube you can do that from 7.30pm The devil wants that on the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp that's what the devil wants okay? and that is what's happening but actually it comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to, to know and worship and love a good God is that the blessing is the repentance God, for all intents and purposes, needn't be there. And we need to recapture a sense of the godness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God. Three families. Because we weren't in that church building on a Sunday at 10.30 anymore, decided that was the end of our relationship didn't want anything else to do with us, not heard from them in years. Painful proof of what I'm saying. Painful proof 
that something is very wrong and sick within the church. I've been encouraging you guys to think about your church in recent weeks and getting you to think about whether or not you should be seriously leaving your church and repenting that you were ever a part of that in the first place. And I'm conscious that that's a very serious thing. And someone had mentioned to me recently about potentially doing something to then address the question, well, what next? Hence the title of this piece today, Leaving Church, Then What? And it's the then what that I want to address in this vlog today. To begin with, I want to just paint a picture or two regarding a quote from a lady who attended a book launch event that I did nearly three years ago who had, at the end of the book launch, mentioned, and I don't apologise for mentioning this, again, for those of you who already heard me say this, because this is significant, the person had said to me, Nick, we can't all leave the church, can we? Because it would just be chaos. And in that moment, an inception-type catalyzing moment, because it became the tagline for our podcast into the prey breaching the chaos of the church. In response to the lady's question, we can't all leave church because it will be chaos, wouldn't it? I immediately knew that we're already in chaos and again, those of you who have listened to me for any time will know that I say that repeatedly for good reason. And But I want to paint two pictures. First of all, the, the picture of everybody remaining as he is, and then the picture of everybody leaving the church. And I'll begin in reverse order. The lady in question had asked me to think about that. We can't all leave the church, Nick, because it would be chaos, wouldn't it? Because she was making this point. No one's going to be in the buildings. So this is this is in her understanding of this is her understanding of what would be chaotic. That nobody would be in the building on Sunday morning. That tithes wouldn't be being paid as they normally are. That the lost would be neglected. I.e., people wouldn't be saved. And that, as a related thought, that discipleship would be neglected. Is this, is this true? Is this the chaos that would unfold if everybody was to leave the church? So think about the lockdown. How many people, and this is a very important question, write it down, think about it, pray about it. How many people during the lockdown when the churches were forcibly closed, how many people were not saved, were not saved who would have been had the churches been opened? I would suggest very few. You can also ask that question differently. How many people were saved during lockdown when the churches were closed and who weren't immediately funneled into an idolatrous system of deception? All it would take is one for it to be worth it. Listen to our friend Amy's story. So you have one picture there. If everybody left, this is the chaos, the supposed chaos. And the second picture is if everybody 
remained. Everyone in their preferred camps, which is what denominational understanding of church is, irrespective of the health of the whole, theological contradictions, Sunday syndrome, a sense in all of us, I think, in some way of there being little power, little conversions, little resultant, contagious, infectious disciples infiltrating city of temples, the total confusion for the average unsaved, unchurched person looking in, and the dishonor of God, the dishonor of the Father, the opposite of hallowed be thy name. And you're telling me that's not already chaos. Total deception, guys. Theological contradiction being accepted as carte blanche when it's a, it should be understood to be a red, red warning alarm that something more root level is seriously sick and wrong and therefore that something more serious and radical needs to happen. A couple of statements just at the beginning of this, and then we're going to go into the book of Thessalonians because I think Thessalonians is a window uh, into our question, leaving church, then what? In terms of having painted those two pictures, this is what I believe to be true. I believe that the darkest aspect of the church, the, the darkest aspect of the chaos of the church is precisely the predominant view expressed by this lady's question that we're not in chaos and that if we did leave the chaos, we would be in chaos. I, I believe that's the darkest aspect of the chaos of the church is thinking that we're not in chaos and that if we were to do the thing that would, that would breach the chaos, we would in fact end up being in chaos. I think that is a deep spiritual blindness. Number two, I believe that the church scene is more chaotic than any of us know, that the idolatry is darker than any of us feel. And number three, I believe that the church would be less chaotic if everyone did leave. I'm going to qualify what I mean by that. Would be less chaotic if everyone did leave and committed to what I'm proposing and modeling. Let me just say this, that by leaving, I am not meaning disobeying Hebrews 10, 25. Quite the opposite, but rather entering into a repentant posture of, I can bear this no longer. The very posture in which Hebrews 10, 25 is actually realized. I'm going to qualify everything that I've just said and what I go on to say here from um, the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and I might do some some more spin-off stuff on the Thessalonian community after this. But I want to begin by emphasizing this verse at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. In the first chapter of the book, Paul commending the Thessalonian community despite its present problems and, and so on, was that they had turned to God 
This is, this is 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. The chaos of the church is that we do not turn from idols. We do not truly serve the living God and we do not truly wait for the sun from heaven. Why did we leave? Well, I'll just give a little bit of testimony here. For Again, some of you may know this, some of you won't know this. If you're interested, I've written a book, Body Zero. You can, you can buy it on uh, the link in the, in the video here or... Um, if you, if you need us to send it you for free, we can do that as well. Why did we leave? Why did I write what I wrote? Because I was hurt? Because I don't love God? As a direct relationship between loving God and loving the church? That I, didn't, that I don't love people? No, I want to say for precisely the opposite reasons. Why did we leave in 2019, on the 1st of July 2019 was for two reasons, for an all-consuming passion for the glory of my father, your father most likely, most hopefully, and to a dawning awareness concerning the danger of the lost. Why did we leave? What was our conscription of conscience, the film The Draft, if you've not seen it, in microcosm, Number one, an all-consuming passion for the glory of my father, of our father. And number two, an, a dawning awareness, a growing awareness concerning the danger of the lost. And like we're about to see in Paul's earliest writings to the Thessalonians, around about 50 AD, that the Holy Spirit also brought Mary and I to a place, and I believe countless others, and not just before lockdown, but subsequent to lockdown, brought us forcibly, when the Holy Spirit does things, you know, if you're truly surrendered, he will forcibly make you do things that you probably wouldn't have ever imagined that you'd have done, to the place where we could no longer bear the compromise. And that phrase, no longer bear, I'm going to re return to in just a minute. No longer bear the compromise, lukewarmness and idolatry that we were exposed to. We had to repent about that. We had to repent about being part of a church that ignored New Testament teaching about church leadership, church governance, as though it didn't matter. What did that say to the generations to come who were, rate, who were kind of coming through? We came to see the seriousness of neglecting the Bible. We came to see the seriousness of denominational idolatry. We came to see the seriousness and feel the seriousness of dishonoring the name of Jesus. And so July 2019 came. We released publicly the book Body Zero and made a public statement at this event during which we were asked this question, well, we can't all leave the church because it would just be chaos. And I want to say something that I don't think I've ever said publicly before, but I'm saying this to make the point that quite literally overnight, making that decision to um, leave the church that we were at, which was an Elim church in Edinburgh, 
um, but more than just leaving a church to go to another church, that we had come to a fork in the road. We'd come to a place of more radical examine, which meant that we weren't going back to the denomination. It's not just a question of finding another church that's more word and spirit. You know, just adjusting the balance slightly so that we get a bit more solid biblical teaching and maybe a little bit less freedom in worship, a little bit more word, a little bit less spirit. No, something more radical was going on. And this is what happened almost literally overnight is that three friends, three families who we were in close relationship with, close enough to have over for meals regularly, close enough to have over into our most personal, sacred space, if you like, um, hosting, entertaining, relaxing, doing life together, praying, worshipping, creating. Three families, because we weren't in that church building on a Sunday at 10.30 anymore, decided that was the end of our relationship. Didn't want anything else to do with us. Not heard from them in years. Painful proof of what I'm saying. Painful proof that something is very wrong and sick within the church for that to happen. Does that mean that I'm bound up in toxic unforgiveness or hurt? No. Father, forgive them. They literally cannot see what they've done. They literally cannot see the spiritual blindness that would result in that kind of Sunday syndrome behavior. With the Bible in hand and saying, is what I currently understand church to be faithful with this or not? If I'm asking you to do that, as I have in recent weeks, the only wise, sensible question, therefore, is unto what? And the question here is wisdom, to be wise and sensible. Unto what? What's the answer here, Franks? Someone had asked me, as I say, to, to do this piece addressing this question, and I, I think it's good and it's pastorally sensitive and responsible pastorally to do this, but also I want to say that it's also a question albeit wise and needed, and I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't, is to make this point that it's also a question that is symptomatic of one of our biggest problems, which is that we want a vision, we want an answer before we're willing to let go. How many times did we see God tell his people to go, to leave, to move on without having a guarantee of where it is that they were going? Abraham, classic example. But the list goes on and the principle is one of living by faith and not by sight. And so although I'm addressing this issue today, I want to just say as well that I think it's a symptom of one of the biggest hurdles in the church moving forward at this point in church, world and church history, is that we want some kind of vision for what God is going to do before we've come to a, a radical historical posture change of repentance, which is the only point at which he will give us that. He will only give us a vision for what next when we come to a place of willingness to step away from the idolatry.
All right, guys. Well, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians and just I want to highlight some points here from this book that I've I've been quite strongly led to today and and just to make some points. I'm going to read the first two and a bit chapters, not not because the rest of it's not valid, it's just we've got a limited time here and I want to try and keep this piece to a relatively good length. We'll do more on this. Let me just read these points and I'm going to come come with some thoughts. I hope you've got your Bible with you just to be able to look closely. Paul, Sivanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but because but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts, should you leave your church. For we never, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how truly and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Just a couple more verses. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labour would be in vain." My intention and hope and desire here is just to go through some things quickly in response to some of these verses. And I want to take us just through these first few chapters with some thoughts under this thought of leaving church. Should I leave the church? Then what? This is what I'm addressing and I'm pointing to what I see here. Every chapter finishes with a reference to the second coming Um but there's also the, it's an emphasis to do with the community of the second coming. That's really my point. I'm just these are my observations from this chapter, and I'm drawing it all together. So just bear with me. Look at one verse four. The love of God in election. Some people would view this as the as a doctrine of demons. One verse four. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you. All right, so this is the this is the type of community that I see as a reason to leave where you're at if you're not like this. Um, imitating what and who? Look at verse six of chapter one, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of imitation in the church today, isn't there? Imitating fine-sounding communicators. But if you imitate, as this is telling us, to imitate Paul and the Lord himself, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, we are to be imitating what it's like to receive the word in much affliction, with joy. Okay, so this is, this is, uh, just, this is these are all signposts or um, bullet points for you to consider. Chapter 2, just go on to 2, verse 2. Look what it says here. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, again, boldness to declare the word of God in the midst 
of much conflict. Speaking to not to please, this is in 2 verse 4, this is another point here. 2-2, boldness to declare the word of God in the midst of much conflict. All right, again, how does that relate to your experience? Or, or chapter 2 verse 4, speaking not to please man, but God who tests our hearts. Let's read that. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Again, litmus test. Is this true of your church? The speaking that goes on, the kind of speaking that's been entrusted with something as glorious as this, is the speaking that goes on to please man? Or come what may, to please God. Look, look at this as a, as a key feature. So being affectionately desirous of you, says Paul, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, this is crucial, coming against what I was saying earlier about arm's length Sunday syndrome, sharing with you not only the, the gospel, but also our own selves. Look at that phrase. Look at our own selves because you had become very dear to us. There's a lot of love you, brother. Much love. It's one of my it's one of my pet peeves, or one of my bugbears when people just willy-nilly throw out the word love when you know full well it's not substantially, it's not it's not real. As evidenced by three sets of friends, three families that we knew. Much love, love you, brother. And then just disappear because we no longer can, at a conscience level, go to that church. It's something, this is not what we're reading here. There's a process. Look at that, verse 8. You had become very dear to us. That's a process. That happens. I think if you've anyone who's been exposed to Sunday syndrome over a long period of time, you might have a difficulty in trusting people because of behaviors like I've just flagged up. But there was something very different going on here. Again, just to echo that previous thought in verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I want to come to just um, a final thought here in three one, and then verse 5. So this happens twice in the space of just a few verses. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, that's the phrase, bear it no longer. And then if you jump down to verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. There's, and this is, a, this is a related thought to what I was just saying about the strength of Christian bonds of the Holy Spirit when it's genuine, okay? Often in the context of martyrdom, death, costly discipleship, you have this sense in which conscience comes into play in a different way. And for Paul, and the point he was making is that he couldn't, he couldn't bear it any longer to not know about how the church in various different places were getting on, which is why he sent Timothy. Again, read Acts 17, and you'll see that happening. And by the way, Acts 17 is a real insight into the ferocity of the Jewish hatred in Thessalonica it says somewhere near there that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily. It's a lesson for us, isn't it? So there's this, there's this phrase, bear it no longer. And if you, 
if you do a word search on that phrase, which pops up in three one and three five, four Ephesians four fourteen comes up. Thinking of that phrase, and we can bear it no longer. See it here again. Look what he says. This is Paul to Ephesus so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Look at that. So that we may no longer be children. There's this sense in which it became intolerable. It became an intolerable thought for Paul to put up with certain things. Now, in in that context, being separated from knowing how the church were getting on, in Ephesians 4, as I've just read there, it was false doctrine. And again, this relates to the thought from Mark 4.24 that we need to be giving much more careful attention to what we're hearing. Again, all of this is pulling a big thought together, which I'm coming to, about whether or not you should be in your church, whether you should repent about that. And if you come to what I think is almost an inevitable conclusion in most contexts and situations, if you're going to be set towards faithfulness, the question then becomes, well, unto what? And this is what I'm showing you from 1 Thessalonians. Okay, so that's those that's those two phrases in here. Verse 1 of chapter 3, I could bear it no longer. And then in verse 5, for this reason, I could bear it no longer. Putting your head on a pillow at the end of night in peace is such a is such a blessing. It's such a, there's nothing like it, is there? Peace. And I think that's what I'm saying is that you... You can bear it no longer when you come to a place where the Spirit of God is conscripting your conscience to come away from compromise, to come away from idolatry. to come away from false doctrine, to come away from this whole thing of contradictory theology. Jesus is like that in one postcode. He's completely the opposite in another postcode. It's just it's just sickening. It should be sickening to all of us, and yet it's not. It's tolerated. We can't hear the voice of God. Some church pastors calling the government to account because it's a disgrace that the churches were closed. Other Christian ministers, like me, saying that that's exactly what God wanted. Is God confused? Is God double-minded? Does God not know what he's saying? The problem is with us, because we're not willing to acknowledge the chaos and the contradictions and to make steps of faith that are fitting in that reality so as to what? So as to hear God. This is where the separation, the division comes in. If you read 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, we know that Paul conceded that there was a need for division in Corinth for a specific reason, reason to answer my quandary that I just posed there, to show who it is that are truly hearing God. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. the point of the division, the point of it was to show those who were in right standing with God and those who were not. This is, this is the benefit of the wilderness. This is the benefit of separation coming to a place of being able to hear God through the noise, the chatter, the static of the rhythms of Sunday syndrome. We came to the point of coming away and we're not going back. We've grown exponentially having walked away to trust the Spirit of God in the wilderness 
what is he doing? Well, in the words of Jeremiah 6, 6, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. There's an echo here of, or a pre-echo of Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Come to me, find rest for your souls. His way is always light and his burden is always light. His yoke is always easy and you'll find rest for your souls. And there's a rest, there's a restlessness about believing that Hebrews 10.25 means go to a church on Sunday at 10.30, fine. If you're not, you're not being obedient. There's a restlessness about that. It's knackering. You'll spend, you can spend a whole lifetime being knackered with that faulty thought. And I'm showing you here that the ancient ways... The, the final little bit of that, Jeremiah 6, 6 is, but they said, we will not walk in it, say the people, but we will not walk in it. That's the prevailing attitude of the predominant landscape of the church. This is it. This is the answer to, for leaving church, then what? The ancient paths. Not ancient as in old, as in prehistory, as in infinite, as in eternal, as in timeless. Taking Jesus to people instead of attracting people to man-centered, man-made church denomination. The chaos in microcosm is that we live to attract people to ourselves. This is the, this is the chaos in microcosm, that we live to attract people to ourselves, the things that we've made, man-centered. I could, I could speak to you another, for another half an hour about what I've personally learned as a disciple, having walked away from the rhythms of church that kept me bound in gospellessness. The chaos of the church in microcosm is that we live to attract people to ourselves, man-centered church, rather than living to take Jesus to people. I think the division of word and spirit where... If you go to one church to get some solid word, but it's cessationism and just death in worship, or go and get some good, lively, contemporary Christian music, but there's probably a GCSE level sermon, that is that is the doctrines of demons. The kingdom of heaven, I'm not living for that. Neither should, neither should you. The kingdom of heaven is both and. This is what God is doing, and I believe this is the answer to the question, leaving church, then what? God is, is forming community. He's teaching people to find community around the childlike simplicity of taking Jesus to people. He loves you. He loves you so much. He loves us so much that he's willing for this to be an uncomfortable uprooting and disruption. Remember those verbs in Jeremiah 1 verse 10, four verbs of uprooting to the two of planting. Planting is going to come. Planting is going to come. It's like the, this is what I was saying at the beginning. We want a vision of the planting before we've uproot, been uprooted. No, the uprooting has to come first. I want to just finish with some practicals, okay? And again, this is partly autobiographical in terms of what we've learned and found from having the courage to follow Jesus in the wilderness, to truly hear him, feeling the cost and the pain of all of it, you know, like losing friends just because we're not in a building. Were you ever our friends? 
These are some practical things. I would say just for, for, for you who have come to a place of about to take a step, maybe you already have. And I pray that you do if you're in a context of unfaithfulness. Firstly, don't put a time limit on it. We tend to think, oh, okay, I'm going to step away. And again, there's this overlaid opinion of people. It's like, oh, if you, if you, if you, change, it's okay to change churches, but if you have a period of an in, an, unde- an unknown period of cellar and examine in between, it's like alarm bells after what three weeks, four weeks. If you're not, in, if you're not transferred to another church, don't put a time limit on it, and don't come underneath that pressure, which is just part of man and often it will be tarted up to sound like pastoral wisdom you know like not forsaking hebrews 10 25 and whatever don't put a time limit on god if he's taking you into a place to hear him of wilderness to get away from the chatter the religious christian chatter don't put a time limit. don't say to god right god i'm going to give you two weeks and if you've not changed my life in two weeks i'm back to it like a dog eating its vomit. Don't do that. Have the courage of your conviction. I would say focus on repentance, especially the repentance from the fear of man. Again, I'm just drawing on what I'm seeing in this Thessalonian community who were riveted on the return of the Lord. I've, no, I've said nothing about that. Seek to speak to a select few trusted people. It's good and wise to to surround yourself with counsel and advisors, but be conscious that there is a incompatibility with the mainstream spiritual leadership who often aren't willing to take steps into the wilderness. So I would say, on the one hand, invite counsel, but select few. Look to God and not man. Look to God Fear God, not man. Take the gospel to people daily. Take, don't just go into a, a wilderness, a, a, enter a kind of like, oh, just like detached your brain. I'm just on a beanbag worshipping and reading my Bible. And passive. Take the gospel. Repent for your gospellessness. Plant seeds of the gospel every single day where, where you've been blessed with a day to do that. Repent for all the gospelless days you've had. That's a big reason why God would take you into the wilderness, disciple. The one thing that you've been told to do, have you been doing it? Are you doing it? Will you do it? Don't put a time limit on God. Repent, especially for the fear of man. Speak to a select few. Look to God and not man. Where does our help come from? Take the gospel to people daily. Two more. Sing. Make a point of singing every day. If you're a musical person or if you play an instrument, do that with joy. But sing. Ambush Satan with song. And finally, I would just say trust Worship, trust him that he knows perfectly how to lead you through transition to a place of faithfulness, away from idolatry. It was the very first thing, wasn't it, that that I've said from, from verse 9, is that they turn to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. This is how I want to finish with the thing that really caught my attention as a as a pastoral prayer from 1 Thessalonians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3 5. This is the prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Isn't that lovely? Beautiful. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Should you leave your church? Most likely. Away from faithfulness, unfaithfulness, away from compromise and idols. And the knowledge that the Lord knows perfectly by his spirit how to lead you, when you should camp, how long you should camp there for, when it's time to move on, how to defend you, how to stop your, your clothes wearing out, your shoes wearing out, how to feed you daily. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ.